We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. So just a, just a quick recap of, of what's happened uh, so far. Paul is, is thankful for the church. They've partnered with him in the gospel ministry, uh, and he desires to encourage them by telling them that the, the Lord is going to continue and complete his work in them until the day of Jesus Christ. And Paul affectionately loves the church. He, he prays that they would abound more and more in, in love and in knowledge and discernment. Uh, and, and he's writing from prison. And as he's writing, he, he tells the church that the whole guard has heard about the gospel. Um, and while he's in prison, there are also those who are preaching out of envy, out of rivalry of, of Paul's ministry. They're, they're preaching for their own benefit. Uh, but Paul rejoices in the fact that the truth is being proclaimed, even though they mean him harm. And as he's in prison, he's confident that he's going to be released, but he doesn't, he doesn't know the future for sure. He recognizes that being sentenced to death is, is a possibility, uh, but for the Christian, to live as Christ and to die is gain. And so he commends the church to live their, ma- their life in a manner worthy of the gospel as long as they have life to live even as they face trials and opponents that mean them harm. A large part of being able to to live this way is to live in a a humble manner that thinks about others' best interests, not simply your own. And and Jesus is the perfect example of this. He, He lived his life as a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death on the cross, and he will be highly exalted and given the name that is above every name. And as the church is to be living in the manner worthy of the gospel and following the example of, of Jesus, uh, they're to hold fast to the word as, as they work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, and Paul, in, in the midst of this, he, he hopes to send Timothy and Epaphroditus to them, and two examples of men who have been following after the Lord in a, in a commendable way and can care for the church. And so this brings us to today, uh, chapter 3. So in light of all of what Paul has been writing, uh, there, there's a question, there's questions that are answered uh, this morning. The question is this. Where is the source of righteousness, and how is righteousness attained? The way these questions are answered will define what someone believes about life, uh, what someone believes about Salvation, what someone believes about God. And there are differing opinions about how these questions are answered. And Paul provides the church with a warning of who to look out for. And he provides the true answer as to where righteousness is found. And so, Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Lord, this morning as we look at your word, I ask that you would soften our hearts, that you provide us with eyes to see and ears to hear, that we'd be encouraged this morning by the truth of the gospel. And pray this in your name. Amen. So, Immediately after speaking about how Epaphroditus has uh, improved in, in health, so Paul transitions into a, a new section here where he commends the Philippian church to rejoice. And this isn't any type of rejoicing. There is a specific purpose and reason for this rejoicing. Uh, this rejoicing is specifically in the Lord. So keep Keep that in mind as we study this passage. Rejoicing in the Lord is an important note to remember as it sets up the rest of what Paul is going to say in the following verses. So Paul, he's about to warn the church about something that he has already spoken to them about. He says, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. The church is in need of being reminded of the truth. Uh, he is saying the same things to them. We need, this, we need this too. We need to hear the same truths about God over and over again. It, it, it's good and healthy for our soul. And it's almost like Paul saying here, it's okay, I can speak to you about this again. It's not a problem. In fact, it, it's good for you. And the truth he's going to speak to them is also going to help keep the church safe, uh, safe from harm. And so a thought to consider here, there are times when it is necessary for the church to be warned. Sometimes we, we need something to be brought to our attention in order that we would avoid it and, and remain safe. Uh, just like we warn our children not to go run off into the street uh, because there's danger there, we see a warning from Paul, uh, and warnings have something to do with potential harm. So what, what is the potential harm here that, that Paul is warning about? It's a, it's a spiritual harm. So the, the Philippians, they were a Roman colony, so they were Gentiles. And one of the big controversies at the time with the early church, the, the question was this, what do the Gentiles need to do in order to be saved? So salvation for the Gentiles hinged upon that question. 
And there were some false teachings that were going around the church about the answer to this question. So Paul says to look out three times. So this is the warning, look out. Who is he saying to look out for? He provides three different descriptions. Dogs, evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. So who is he talking about here? After Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, the gospel was first proclaimed, preached to the Jews, and eventually made it to the Gentiles. Jesus said this in Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the gospel was going to be proclaimed to the Jews first, and then it would reach the Gentiles. We see this again, uh, Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the good news of the gospel was meant to go out to the whole world and not just the Jewish people. But this truth was controversial in the early church. Uh, There were those who thought that people first had to become Jewish in order to then become Christian. Uh, And so this group of people was called the Judaizers. So they believed that the Gentiles needed to convert to Judaism, which meant to submit to the Mosaic law, have the sign of the Old Covenant, circumcision, in order to be saved. And these Judaizers opposed Paul's ministry. They were specifically teaching that Gentiles must submit to the Jewish laws in order to be saved. This controversy came to a head, and we see that there was a council in Jerusalem that, that spoke about this issue in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 5, it says this, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So this is is the argument of the Judaizers, that it's necessary. So the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And there had been much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is the conclusion of the council that uh, the Gentiles did not need to become circumcised and, or be ordered to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. We will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. We're saved by grace through faith. But even though this conclusion was made, uh, there were still some uh, people who believed the Gentiles needed to become Jewish. 
a, a good amount of Paul's ministry was correcting this false teaching. The book of Galatians specifically addresses uh, this teaching of the Judaizers. And now we see that the Philippian church, again, they're a Roman colony full of Gentile believers. They're needing to hear this truth again, be reminded that they do not need to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so Paul warns against the dogs, the evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. And Paul uses these terms to describe the Judaizers. And it's a description that's, that's full of irony. The term dogs was a very derogatory term. During the day, the, the stray and wild dogs, they'd roam the streets. They're scavengers, dirty, dangerous, a nuisance, barking, biting, potentially having disease, they're harmful and to be avoided. And so dogs was often a term that the Orthodox Jews used to call the Gentiles, calling them dirty, calling them sinful, calling them dangerous. But now Paul is flipping that term back upon them, that it's actually the Judaizers who are like the barking dogs who are dangerous to the Gentile believers. So look out for them. They're evildoers. The, the irony here is that the, the Judaizer believed that faith and good works is what brought about salvation. Uh, that, that faith and following the law is how someone is saved. Dana recently spoke about the connection between faith and, and works. Saving faith will produce works, but it is not the works that saves you. So Paul calls their, their trust in the law, uh, which is really a, a trust in themselves to, to follow the law, he calls that evil. Uh, trusting in good works to save you is itself an evil work. Uh, and so this is, this is the irony. Uh, these people, they would have looked at themselves as being full of, of good works. Uh, their, their trust was misplaced. Uh, the good works that they placed their trust in uh, moved them to, to glory in themselves rather than glorying in Jesus Christ. To, to place your trust in your works is to have faith in yourself, not to have faith in Christ. And he says they're, they're mutilators. And this is a pun uh, on the words of mutilation and, and, and circumcision. They, they, they kind of sound similar. He's kind of making a pun. Um, circumcision by itself, it's simply a mutilation of the flesh and nothing more. Uh, there's nothing that saves you about physical circumcision. In fact, it's a, a, a false circumcision. Uh, someone who is saved has received a spiritual circumcision in Christ. Uh, Colossians 2.11 says, in him also you are circumcised with a circumcision of Christ, have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The true circumcision is not the physical one, but the spiritual one. It's the changing of the heart, not simply the changing of the outward appearance. And this is what Paul mentions in in verse 3, where he says, For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul makes a clear distinction of who to look out for and now who the true circumcision is. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ are the true circumcision, the the true people of God. There has been that inward change, not just a, a physical outward change. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And this true circumcision is characterized in, in three ways. They, they worship by the Spirit of God, they glory in Christ Jesus, and they put no confidence in the flesh. So th- there had been a time where going to the temple is where people would go to worship. There was this the particular location. Uh, but now, in light of Jesus, true worshipers of God are not identified by a particular location, but by worshiping the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. And this comes from the heart. Jesus speaks of this with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 20, beginning with the woman saying, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The worship of God is not based upon any of our own works or on a specific location, but on Jesus. This is how we worship in the Spirit, by worshiping in light of Jesus, not in light of the observance of the the Mosaic Law or going to a particular place. And, And this is why the true circumcision is also characterized by glorying in Jesus and not putting confidence in the flesh. The word glory here is to say that the true circumcision boasts in Jesus Christ. We're not to boast in our own good works. Our good works have no saving power. But we do boast and rejoice in the works of Jesus Christ. It's God who saves us. His character, his love, his works for you. So the, the controversy with Paul and the, the Judaizers is a differing of opinion about the relationship between God and man. And, and Paul and the Judaizers, they, they have two opposite and opposing views of how God relates to man. It's, in some ways, it's sort of like this. Um, it, does God operate like an employer 
who is looking at resumes to see who he'll pick for the job. Do you remember the last time you updated your resume? You list out all of your accomplishments. You want to make sure they look really good. You list out all of your education to make sure it's impressive. You're, you're trying to convince the employer that I'm your guy. I, you should hire me because I'm qualified. I can effectively uh, handle the position that you have. I'm your best choice. I, I know that some of you are on the other side of that conversation. Uh, you're trying to hire somebody and sometimes you're looking at resumes and you know what you're looking for and sometimes you'll look at a resume and not even have to read it. And it's like, I, I know that this person isn't going to fit. You know the things that you're looking for. Um, you're trying to find the right person for the job. Does, does God operate like that with us? Do we need to set up an impressive spiritual resume trying to convince God to, to give us his love, uh, give us salvation, uh, to bring us into his family? Thankfully, that is not how God operates with us. Um, the, the true circumcision does not place any confidence in the flesh. However, th this is what the Judaizers were, were teaching. And, and Paul is warning the church to look out for them. They were placing confidence in their works. They, they taught that there was this, this certain list that needed to be added, uh, have this, this great spiritual resume in order to be saved. Look at how Paul refutes their claims. Paul, Paul knows that out of all people, he actually could have a good deal of confidence in the flesh. Uh, he writes out his resume for us to see. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for conf confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Paul lists out his, his resume. It's, it would be pretty in, impressive uh, considering what the Judaizers were looking at. Uh, Paul says he has even more reason to boast in himself than, than anybody else if he were to boast in the flesh. In some ways, he's one-upping the, the Judaizers. But this is meant as an attempt to show them that their works are useless. Paul was born into a family that obeyed the law. So he was circumcised properly in light of the law. He had a good start to life, obeying the law from the very beginning. He was a pure-born Jew. Not only that, but from the, from the tribe of Benjamin. And the tribe of Benjamin was a, a good tribe to be from. Benjamin and Joseph were Jacob's two favorite sons, uh, which is completely inappropriate, uh, but could be a sense of pride if you were from the line of Benjamin. Uh, the first king of Israel came from the tribe of Benjamin. 
And when Absalom decided to fight against King David, which was the tribe of Benjamin, family history was commendable. His family wasn't the only thing that he could look to in pride. He was also very knowledgeable. Uh, he was a Pharisee. Uh, being a Pharisee was re- is kind of looked at as being the pinnacle of, of spiritual maturity. Uh, he knew the law backward and, and forward. Uh, he, he had a high intellect. Um, and he, was, he was also passionate about what he believed in. Uh, to stand for something is also to stand against what opposes it. And he persecuted the church. Uh, he believed that he was following the Lord and, and zealously went after the church in order to serve what he thought God wanted him to do. He was willing to do anything for the Lord, even persecute the church. He was willing to oppose what he believed were lies. He watched over the stoning of, of Stephen and was involved in other persecutions as well. And he goes beyond that. When it comes to righteousness under the law, he says he's blameless. So not only did he know the rules, he followed them. He followed the rules and regulations. He fulfilled his outward religious duties. But after listing off all of these accomplishments, his impressive spiritual resume, what does he say? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The language that Paul uses here, they're business terms of profit and loss. So whatever profits he thought he had in his own flesh, in his own works, uh, when he's confronted with Jesus, he sees that these profits are actually, are actually lost in comparison to Christ. Uh, his, his good works, his family history, those aren't things that could save him. They're worthless. Uh, all of his family heritage, all of his accomplishments, all of his possessions, all of his passion were not a source of righteousness that could be appealed to on the final day of judgment. So how, how could a man who is so smart, like Paul, so, so knowledgeable in the scriptures, have been so deceived? He was looking for righteousness in the wrong source. Even though he had been sincere in what he believed, he was a sincere Pharisee. Uh, it's possible to be sincerely wrong, and he was. Uh, the, the Judaizers sincerely believed that they need to have this wonderful spiritual resume of keeping the law in, in order to be saved, but they're sincerely wrong. What they need, what you and I need, is, is Christ alone. Jesus saved Paul, opened his eyes to the truth, And to add anything to the work of Christ is to diminish the accomplishment of Christ. To say that there are other things, such as circumcision, that need to be added to the the work of Christ is, is to say that the accomplishment of Christ's sinless life and his death on the cross is not enough. And what that would mean is that there's something more that needs to be added something more that needs to be added to the work of God. And that would be to have a salvation of works, salvation from your own effort. That degrades the life of Christ. It degrades the cross of Christ. 
degrades the resurrection to say that the life and death of, of Jesus is not enough, that is not sufficient, is horribly demeaning. Uh, the 1689 Confession says this, the Lord Jesus has fully satisfied the justice of God, obtained reconciliation, and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those given to him by the Father. He has accomplished these things by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he once for all offered up to God through the eternal spirit. The, the justice of God is fully satisfied in Christ. <laughs> that is good news. This means that Jesus wasn't lying on the cross when he said it's finished. He was telling the truth. It truly is finished. The justice that our sin demanded is, is paid for completely. You don't need to gather up your, your spiritual resume of, of your good works in order to be saved. Those good works couldn't save you anyway. You need to be saved, which, which means you're helpless on your own. And the analogy that, that, that scripture uses is the analogy of, of death. That apart from Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and you need Jesus to save you, to raise you back up to life. And it doesn't matter how, how moral you are, every person falls short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter all of your accomplishments, what you've achieved in your life, those things are not enough to make you right before a holy and just God. So do not place your trust in, in your own good works. They can't save you. They're ultimately useless. And Paul knows this about his own, uh, his own works. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The gains that, that Paul had he now places in the lost column. Uh, knowing Jesus surpasses everything else in existence. The knowledge of Jesus is far superior to anything. Um, and even our good works, we could, it's like trash. It's like refuse. Um, this is what Paul says. In order that we would gain Christ, I don't know if you noticed this in, in our reading of, of Second Kings. Um, with the, the house in the temple of, of Baal, did you notice what they turned it into afterwards, after they destroyed it? They turned it into a latrine. Uh, that's a, a fancy word for a toilet. Um, that our good works are like that. Uh, worthless, um, to be thrown away. Um, and this is, this is what Paul calls his impressive resume, uh, is to be thrown away in order that, 
He does not place his, his trust in those things, but is unified with Jesus instead. Um, repenting and believing in Jesus is to recognize our, our need of a Savior, to recognize that we are sinful, um, to have salvation, find our salvation in Christ alone, not in ourselves, uh, not looking to our own accomplishments, our own uh, wealth, our own uh, deeds, our own, own words, but looking to the Lord. And, and so this is what Paul is warning the Philippian church about. Uh, do not fall to the teachings of, of the dogs, the, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh who place their trust and try to find a, the source of righteousness in themselves. Don't fall for this false teaching. Don't be deceived by it. Instead, find your righteousness in Christ alone. The source of righteousness will never be from our own effort. Righteousness can never come from the law as no man fully, can, fully keeps the law. The law exposes our hearts. It shows us our sin. It shows us our need for a savior. And so do not look to the law for salvation. Look to the Lord. And so as, as a church this morning, we would also be wise to heed the warnings that, that Paul gives to the Philippian church. To look out for those who say you need to add to the work of Christ. That there are other things that you need to do in order to be saved. Salvation comes by grace through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this is why we rejoice in the Lord rather than rejoicing in our own good works. We rejoice in the fact that Jesus has paid it all. Um, are you someone who is tempted to look at your own good works and trust in them for your salvation? Um, rejoice in the Lord. Salvation does not come from you, but from God. Are you someone who's tempted to, to look at your own sin and then despair that you have not achieved what the Lord requires of you? Rejoice in the Lord. Salvation does not come from you. It comes from God. Uh, let's, let's pray. Lord, we're, we're amazed by you and we're, we're so thankful for the fact that we're able to rejoice in your work that we don't have to gather together this incredible spiritual resume to try to convince you to provide us with salvation, to try to convince you to provide us with your love. But instead, we can look to Christ. We can trust in him uh, that he has accomplished uh, a sinless life, that he has accomplished the death that we deserved and uh, resurrection from the grave, uh, providing salvation to all those who repent and believe. So Lord, I ask that you'd help us as we are people who are prone to, to wander. We are people to be prone to boast in our, in our own efforts. Uh, we're prone to um, want to work uh, for our salvation. We want to earn it. Help us to, to trust in you. And even in times as we 
see ourselves as we are, as people who have fallen short of your glory. I ask that you would help us to have a, a godly grief that moves us to repentance and a changed heart and changed life by your grace, and also that we would not despair, but rather that we would rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the fact that salvation is found in you and not in us. And pray this in your name. Amen.